Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I'm a writer, speaker, and educator who loves to geek out with people from a variety of backgrounds about their perspectives on God, the Bible, theology, and some other tangentially related subjects. So pour yourself a drink, grab some food, and join me at this virtual podcast table on this fine autumn day. My guest this week is Dr. George Kalanzas, who is professor of theology and the director of the Wheaton Center for Early Christian Studies. He grew up in Athens— the one in Greece, not Georgia or Wisconsin, and is an evangelical who was in the religious minority. We talk about how that influenced the approach he took in his studies of the early church theologians. Before we jump into the conversation, I have to say thank you to all who are supporting this podcast. I really appreciate how you're connecting with me and giving me feedback, and special thanks to those who take a couple seconds to leave reviews. You are influencing the algorithms. At least I think you are, or doing whatever other voodoo that helps other people find us. So thank you. Keep up the good work. A special shout-out goes to my Patreon team with people like Carrie and Scott Jenkins, who, by the way, have just completed a crazy couple months and yet still support this podcast. This team with the Jenkins financially make it possible to cover the production cost of these episodes, and without them, I could not produce these. So thanks. Now the conversation. We have a lot to cover with Dr. Kalanzas about how this former medical student ended up studying early church history. Oh, and something happened to make my voice sound really tinny on this episode. I don't know what it was. So I was born and raised in Greece, in in Athens, and I'm a fourth-generation evangelical uh, Christian in a country where that is a very, very small minority. So it's a bit more than a hundred years that what we recognize as evangelical churches begun in Greece. Greece is a very religious country. It's uh, predominantly Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. So growing up in, as a religious minority in a religious majority country, is um, identity formative. One understands oneself as at the margins of society, not always participating fully or understanding fully the world around. Because that's not my experience, right? That's the experience of others. After high school, I, I had a chance to come to Chicago, to the U.S. for studies. And that was a galaxy far, far away in a time past. And and the idea was that I would do medical studies, finish with that, go back to Greece and continue there. But that's not the path that eventually became our life. My wife joined me, or the woman who became my wife, Irene, joined me about two years later. We have been here in the U.S. for the last 30 Five years or so. So you knew her from Athens. You oh, must yeah. have been high school sweethearts. But you have to go further you back and... from that. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Uh, so we, I, I jokingly say, you know, she was in the crib next to mine at, 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 <laughs> at the church's nursery. We are of the same age, so we grew up together at church. And uh, it took me about 18 years to persuade her 
to go on a date with me. Wow. But I did. And she did. And then you left her and went to the United States. And then she had to oh, join yeah. you here before you could continue. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the fun part. And, and, and remember, those were the days, uh, you know, younger people in the audience will not even recognize that. Before the internet? What? what? <laughs> when landlines were what we used for phones, uh, we barely were, you know, beyond the circular, like, you know, dial. Right. And, and, and it was stinking expensive to try like to make international calls. It was $3 a minute. So I didn't eat much during that time because it all went to, to pay phone bills. Oh. How did you go from wanting to do medical studies to religious studies? It's a long story, but I finished my, my undergraduate studies are in biology. Then I went to graduate school at the medical school of the University of Illinois in Chicago. But I was on a scholarship, which means that I didn't incur any debt. So that's important in our story because the freedom of the scholarship allowed me to see what I didn't want to do. Because if I had continued or if I had in, incurred debt to do that, of course, you have to persist and, and, and finish. So, right. And you feel obligated, right? Because right. You, get, you dig yourself into a hole and you feel like you've invested too much to, to right. turn around and make a different decision. Right. And, and, you know, medical school debt is a mortgage. It, it yeah. came to a house. So anyway, we had our son, the first of our three children at that time, and with labs, with school. I mean, it, it was I had we had work and we were foreign students, so employment opportunities were very limited. Plus full time work, plus lab work, about twenty five hours, thirty hours a week, on top of everything else. It was a completely unhealthy family life, hmm. and uh, we decided as a family that that was just insanity, that that's not the life we wanted to do. From there, once I resigned from that position, doors opened very, very quickly, and I would say providentially, with scholarships for me to go through a series of graduate programs, because going from natural sciences to humanities, which is what theology or history and philosophy is, is not the simplest of transitions, right? There's right. a corpus of knowledge that one doesn't have, and one has to very quickly ramp up in that. Right. So I, I went through a series of graduate uh, degrees, first in biblical studies and then in patristics, that allowed me to, to do that. They allowed me the space within a span of about three years to basically catch up as much as I could and from there, uh, I went to Northwestern University. I was uh, accepted into the PhD program in religious and theological studies, which was a cooperative program with Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, where I studied under Denny Groh, who was at the time, uh, still is, but at the time was uh, one of the prominent patristic scholars and archaeologists of early Christianity. So... With Dennis' patience, I was able to move through preconceptions that come from minority marginalized perspective to a more robust and more accurate, a better, a more charitable, a more rounded, whatever you want to say, understanding of how history works 
and how to approach texts. One of the reasons why I entered early Christianity was because the milieu into which I was, the, the context in which I was, and I was hoping to be back to, was that of Greek Orthodoxy, which is primarily very heavily based on uh, the work, the writings, the theology, the liturgy of the early church. And I approached that task of engaging the early church somewhat as a bridge or as an apologetic or a means of connecting with a dominant culture. But that carried originally with, with it all the presuppositions of my youth. And right. Remember, oh, that's got to be so hard to untangle that. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and it was only because of the patience of my advisor that it, that happened. Because I remember having a talk with him very early on, very, very early on as I was starting. And he stopped me and he said, so do you want to read about the fathers or would you rather read the fathers? Huh. <laughs> and at that moment, that question like made no sense to me because I had conflated the two, right? So reading an introductory text about Athanasius is not reading Athanasius, right? So he very, very patiently set me off on that path of actually reading documents. Hmm. And that took time, translating Greek and Latin, reading the corpus, and, and you start seeing in introductory courses or introductory books, you know, a little paragraph or a few quotations from a work, and you say, wait a minute, like, this is a hundred page work. <laughs> right. It's, it's probably more complicated it's than that. a little that. bit more complicated <laughs> than this. Or this is a whole sermon that right. somebody gave for an hour, an hour and a half. That, that's what sermons used to be in antiquity, right? Like, and I'm reading like three lines from these. <laughs> Where's right. the rest of the context? Right. And that started a almost 30-year, 25-year love affair right now with the early church in which one has to be willing to listen to voices without prejudging what the result would be because of what one has read in secondary or introductory courses. You were just talking about needing to disentangle those preconceived ideas from your youth, from your later like scholarly work. But did it also work the other way around where you were able to find different kind of insights in these early writings because Athens was the air you breathed from the beginning of your life? Like, so... Were you just more sensitive to certain nuances that maybe European or North American or Asian scholars were not so aware of? Absolutely. And most of the writings are in Greek. Many are in Latin and in Syriac and Armenian and Coptic. But the vast majority of the corpus is written in Greek. And Greek being a first language, not that the modern Greek is the same with ancient Greek, classical or neoclassical Greek, it isn't. One has to learn the language and engage it for its, in its own context. But uh, because it's still one's mother tongue, you get the nuance differently. Right. One gets the humor or the aggravation or 
why this word is more important than that word, or you, you can literally transition the text, like the markings on page, to almost an oral presentation. Hmm. You can yeah. hear the voice differently. But to the substance also of what one reads, it allowed me this engagement with uh, the many centuries of historical development in theology that we call the early or uh, patristic period or medieval church also forces one to reevaluate one's own or one's own traditions theological standing. What have we accepted and why? What have we rejected and why? And how do those engage each other? This is exactly why I've enjoyed this series so much, and I hope you have too. I am totally indulging in an opportunity to take a fresh look at church history that is not as well known to some of us. I am purposefully engaging not only people who know more than me, but people who embody different traditions than me. It allows me to question my own assumptions. For me, this podcast is a friendly place in which to ask, what is the history behind this idea and how does it impact what I believe? And as Dr. Kalanza says, to ask, what have I accepted and why? And what have I rejected and why? Now, you've mentioned a, a couple different times now the word patristics. Can you explain actually what that term means cuz people throw around the early church fathers and they throw around the term patristics and through the years i find people using it quite haphazardly over a huge amount of time so are these right. things the same thing or do they have very specific connotations they both are and they are not well that was clear yeah there you go <laughs> any other questions you have patristic means of the fathers right it is the writings, it speaks of the writings and the period of the fathers of the church. Well, not every writer in antiquity or early Christianity in that period is a father of the church, right? The fathers of the church are recognized writers, theologians, preachers, pastors, etc., on whose writings the church builds its theology and its understanding of what Christianity is. So there are early Christian writers or early writers uh, or writers in the early Christian period who are outside of the Christian mainstream recognized creedal orthodox context. Those are not fathers of the church. Does that make sense? So meaning it's not the people who are in charge of like Alexandria or Constantinople or Rome or Jerusalem or Antioch. It's not those leaders of the church. It's other scholars who are writing Christian documents. Is that right? Yes. And we call them scholars with a very few exception. They're primarily pastors. They, they lead congregations. The writings they have are because of the needs of their congregations. Okay. That's why the vast majority of writings we have are sermons. Sermons right. and commentaries, which originated in sermons. People in antiquity, people until the advent of the modern university, did not sit around and say, well, let's write something. Right? That, that's not how these things worked. Uh, they 
they engaged in writing or in expressions because they had sermons to give, you know, divorces to deal with, uh, people's confessions to hear. They had heresies coming or teachings that did not conform to the to their belief and understanding or their church's belief and understanding that were confusing people in, in, in their parishes and in the bishopics. And, and and they had to respond to those, right? They had people come to them and say, so tell me about Jesus. Who is he actually? Who is Jesus actually? So how can you have like God the Father and then God the Son, let alone God the Holy Spirit, and still have one God, right? How does that work out? So right. they're, res they're responding to the questions of their congregations very much like Paul and the writers of the New Testament, New Testament do. Yeah, sometimes we forget that people like Paul or these early pastors of the Christian church did not go through systematic theology classes. These were not pre-formulated ideas that people learned and then passed on. They were really wrestling through these loose threads almost. And as people came up with questions and said, how on earth does this work? They were like, oh, that is a new and interesting question. <laughs> let's let's think about that. That's, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, yeah. and, and that begins, so going back to the, the nomenclature, there are multiple, so patristics is a disciplinary title, right? So it's it's the discipline of patristics to, to identify that we're talking about that particular period of imperial Rome that, but we're not talking about the Romans, we're talking about the Christians, and we're not talking mm, about just right. simply their lives. We're talking about their historical theology or the development of theology. It's a disciplinary term to identify what actually are we talking about. Hmm. Who actually wrote them down? Was it the actual preachers themselves or was it their students? And who are they actually in communication with? Is it this pastor in communication with their congregation or are the early church fathers sharing documentation with each other? All of that. Okay. Literally, all of that. Let's take some of the earliest post-apostolic, past the New Testament period, for example. They're collected in, um, in collections uh, called the Apostolic Fathers. They didn't call them that. We did, as, as academics did that at the turn of the 19th century so as to know what we're talking about. For example, one set of those are, are the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. There are the letters of Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna, uh, more of an exhortation that is attached to also to his martyrdom. So you have the stories of the martyrdom of that particular person, Polycarp, but to that you attach his his letters or his mm. this one particular letter. Right. You have the work of Justin, who is known as Justin Martyr, right? Who writes uh, apologies. Who, uh, apologies means a defense for or an account for against pagans. So these are various collections. Justin, for example, uh, is a pagan who is converted to Christianity. A philosopher. He's a pagan philosopher who sees Christianity as actually the way of life. More specifically, mm -hmm. he sees it as the way of death, how a person ought to approach death. And that attracts him. And he becomes a follower of the way, right? And then he continues doing what he was doing before, which was 
teach, but now as a Christian. Well, those writings are, are written, some by him, others by his disciples, and then are collected and passed around into the various groups. Hmm. Ignatius writes seven letters. He's the bishop, one of the bishops of Antioch, but he's arrested because he's a Christian in the in the second century, and because he's a Roman, he's not going to be executed on, on the spot. He's going to go through uh, a, a process similar to that of Paul. He's going to be sent to Rome to give an account, and if he doesn't recant his faith, to die, right, to be executed. And on the way, they, they, they go the, the long way, which is the land route rather than the sea route. He writes seven letters to the seven churches of the cities, the seven cities that he's about to enter. So he writes preemptive letters to the cities. Uh, that, that was not uncustomary for persons of a higher social ranking in antiquity, right? Huh. It's a letter of introduction of persons of status. But in his case, he's dealing specifically with issues both back in his own home church and also in the church that he's about to encounter. Eventually, he comes; they come all the, the way down to Rome, and he writes a letter to the church of Rome, whom they, he doesn't know. He doesn't know the churches in Rome. But it has a very specific purpose for that letter, and that is to dissuade them, the Roman communities, Christian communities, from stopping his impending martyrdom. Huh. He tells really? them, do not intervene on my behalf, which also tells you that the churches, the, the church communities in, in Rome, have that kind of power, or at least influence, that they could have conceivably stopped his martyrdom. And the reason, of course, he doesn't want his martyrdom to be stopped is not because uh, he doesn't want to stay alive. It's, it's not a suicidal concept. It is because he wants to be imitating Christ. Right? Martyrdom mm -hmm. in imitatio Christi, in imitation of Christ, is what seals his authority as a bishop. Hmm. Interesting. So... Uh, those letters then are collected and distributed and eventually lost for many, many centuries in libraries, only to be rediscovered within the last couple of centuries and be oh, That's astounding. Yeah. It, it, is, it is not different than the, either the Nag Hammadi or the Dead Sea Scroll. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, right? People use, for whatever reason, they whether it's invasion or catastrophe or wh whatever it is, they try to protect their libraries, right? And in doing so, quite often, they put things in protective cases and stash them so that they're not destroyed. And it takes a long time for things to be re-seen or rediscovered or come up again. Which is something that makes studying history so much fun. We always are discovering new elements, new things, new events that change our mind and our assumptions about the past, which I think is super fun. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we fix 
the past in our mind. History is about stories, right? History is stories. It's not a story or the story. It's stories. It's the stories we tell to make sense of who we are. Right. That's what history is, right? And we have to be willing to listen to the stories again and again and engage whatever new comes to surface and we find and reevaluate. Is this actually what happened? Or did we make it up? And I'm not, and I'm not attributing motives here. Motives are metaphysical, right? Yeah. Uh, did we tell the story such a way so as to be the people we are neglecting other parts of the story? Mm-hmm. Right. And that is, uh, that is, for example, how we tell the story of the women in, yeah. in, the, in the life of the church, the influence of the women in the life of the church, right? Yes. Now that is a very exciting topic. And I actually have written in my notes in bold capital letters, what about the women? But you have to wait until next week to hear Dr. Kalanzas' response, because I want to make sure we continue to set up the foundation for our early Christian documents in the right way. So hold off one more week. Dr. Kalanzas and I went down a deep and twisty rabbit hole about the scholarly view of when the Jewish Christian gospel message became Hellenized. And that conversation led to other trails regarding more recent scholarship that restores the Jewish context to the New Testament writings. It's all super fascinating to me, but slightly off subject when it comes to patristics. So I edited it out and we'll drop it on the Patreon page for anyone to listen to. So even if you're not a Patreon member yet, you can listen to all of that super fun, geeky content there. Ultimately, we ended up talking about how the Jewish and proto-Christian communities were very, very, very small minorities in their environment. When we look at the whole Roman Empire, the place of the gospel stories is barely a dot on the map. And while this part of the conversation is right up my alley, I did gather up my willpower to steer the conversation back to the early church scholars. I asked about what kind of contribution these early teachers and pastors had on the formation of Christian theology that took shape in the early church councils. Like a true historian, Dr. Kalanza stepped back to set the stage for us. There are three distinct periods before we come to 325. And of course, is the first one is the period of the New Testament. Let's call it roughly to the end of the first century, right? Beginning of the mm-hmm. second century. Okay. And that's where, where we have a lot of multiplicity of ideas and expressions, etc. After that, the post-apostolic period, uh, Christianity is slowly, very, very slowly, up to the beginning of the third century for yet another 100 years, in other words, makes inroads in big cities such as Carthage, and, um, et cetera, Alexandria, you know, the big cities, Antioch. And churches are established, communities have discussions and debates, sermons are written, commentaries are written, people have to think. But there is a multiplicity of ideas what it means to be Christian and what Christians believe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And slowly, all these ideas have to be shifted through, 
Right. Well, if if you believe this about Jesus, you cannot also believe that about Jesus, right? Right. Those right. two are incompatible. Right. So which one is it? So that's the period of that kind of theological clarification or beginnings of that period of clarification. But on top of that, that's also a period at which, because Christianity is growing slowly, but growing, they, they become the subject of persecution, various persecutions, for fundamentally four or five different reasons, but because they're seen as a threat to the social fabric of Roman society. Hmm. Right, exactly. What that means is that now they have to give and account for their own existence of who they are, their way of life, not just their theology, but their way of life to the world around them. Well, first and foremost, to not be killed, right? It's like, you know, we're good people, don't kill us. But also an account internally to, to their own people, like to the people who are parts of those churches who say it is worth dying for. No, nobody dies for, for fun. Nobody right. dies for an idea, right? It, it has to be proven. It has to be shown that this is worth dying for. Yeah. And what is the this? Well, you know, people, like, we all die. 100%. So this is not something we can avoid. Then what? It's the then what that matters. And because of the then what, which for Christians is the resurrection, right? The renewed life akin to that of Jesus. How we approach death is very different. What, what brought Justin to Christianity, he says in his apology, is how they approached death. Hmm. We're not afraid of it. And, and Christians in that period, when they are asked to give an account and persecuted, they give that account that the only thing you can take from us is our life, which already belongs to Jesus, who has given us life everlasting. So there's actually nothing you can take from us. Right. So who has power here, you or us? So that's the period of the second and third centuries, right before Constantine. And, and that is why Constantine is so important, because from the period of the Great Persecution, lasted about 10 years, at the beginning of the fourth century, Constantine not only put a stop to that, but for the first time in 313, they recognized Christianity as a licit religion, as a, as a legal religion, rather than a, a superstition, which is an illegal religion in the Roman world. This next part might seem like review for those who listen to Season 1, Episode 24 with Dr. Meredith Riedel, but it's always good to be reminded of what is happening politically and internationally in these large theological issues that were being decided. Plus, this information is key for the next few conversations we're going to have on this podcast. So listen up. So by the time we come to 325, which is a year roughly after Constantine becomes the sole emperor of the whole Roman Empire, having united Western and Eastern parts of the empire. The reason why Constantine calls the council or the gathering of bishops in 325 is because there's theological dis division and debate in the church. And Constantine says, we cannot have a unified empire if we don't have a unified church. Hmm. Yeah. So, Y'all gather over here, 
I'll pay for your way, right? Can you imagine that? Like five years ago, this this bishops were persecuted. Right. And now Constantine says, I'll pay your way. And Timothy Barnes, in, in his wonderful book, Constantine and Eusebius, has a beautiful description of this that comes from Eusebius of Caesarea. It says, on, on the opening day, in the big hall, in the vast hall of the imperial hall, everyone is gathered, the doors open, and the emperor walks in, right? Now, the, everyone who is gathered here is bishops and martyrs, Right. People yeah. who have missing eyes and you know broken limbs and all that, and Constantine enters, not as a as an emperor, well yes as an emperor, but not as a military authority. He enters, and behind him, he's accompanied. The, the people who follow him are, quote, the friends of the emperor, all Christians. End quote. Can you imagine that? Huh. He walks all the way processes all the way down to the front of the room, turns around, there's a stool, a chair for him to sit. And he asks for permission from the bishops to sit. Hmm. The yeah, emperor... It's interesting, yeah. Right? Asks for permission. I mean, just, just stay with that image for a moment. Ten years earlier, 15 years earlier, there was turmoil. And now it's a different world. It, it is amazing. I can't even imagine how people who belonged to the Christian movement made that adjustment. I mean, it's such a fast and dramatic turn yeah. of events. It is. Within, within 60 years from roughly, let's call it three, let's call it 70 years, from 313, 313 Christianity becomes legal, right? Right. At yeah. the end of the century, with Theodosius I, Christianity becomes the official religion. And within another 30 years, every other religion except for Judaism becomes illegal. So the roles have shifted within a 100-year period. And next week, we get to talk about how women were fundamental in the process of articulating and refining the early church's theology. Now, why isn't this talked about more? If you would like updates about what I am doing, you can join me on Instagram or Facebook at Narrative of Place or on Twitter at Cindy Parker PhD. To be among the first to hear about educational and food and wine trips to Israel and potentially Turkey, you can sign up for my newsletter from my website at narrativeofplace.com. And of course, you can join the Patreon team with all the fun perks like sneak peeks at chapters of my upcoming book, spices from my favorite guys in Israel, and access to online teaching courses. If you want to join the team, there is a link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for joining me at the table for these fascinating conversations. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all of the music that you hear. I look forward to our conversations every single week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 